Welcome to the Pastoring with Words podcast, a show where Christian authors and ministry workers have conversations about writing and following Jesus. I'm your host, Daryl Ibe. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Mark Menel. Mark is the Director for Preaching for Europe and the Caribbean for Langham Partnership. He wrote his first book, Cross-Examined, nearly 20 years ago and has since published a handful more. I think his book, When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend, is one of the most important books in looking at the mental health costs of ministry. It's a huge honour to be joined by Mark. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, thanks for for joining us for this one, Mark. And would it be okay if um, you tell me a little bit about uh, what some of your writing is all about? Sure. It's interesting that when I look back, at, when I was at university, I was pretty sure I wanted to write, but I didn't do very much. And I think at the time, it felt like a kind of pipe dream without any sort of solid or clear idea of what I wanted to focus on or, or, or write about. But I just had this sense that that's what I wanted to do. And it would take about another 10 years before I had the chance to start doing it properly. And that was one of those things that came about kind of by accident. I was um, newly ordained in the Church of England and I was working for a church in um, the north of England in Sheffield. And um, I was mainly focused on university students and we were doing a Lent course on the meaning of the cross um, over four weeks. And it um, became pretty clear that, well, one of the greatest books on that subject is John Stott's Cross of Christ. It's a sort of mammoth tome um, and, you know, has all the qualities of of, um, Stott's writing. But the reality was then, and is even more so the case now, there was just no way students were going to read it. And in fact, I'd been one of those who at university had started to read it and didn't get very far. Um, And so I was a reader for IVP for some of their manuscripts. And I just was chatting to one of the editors. I said, well, look, I've been doing this course. What do you think of turning it into something uh, a bit more substantial? And they said, well, give it a go, write a chapter or two. In the end, I ended up writing pretty much the whole thing as a first draft. And that was when they finally gave the green light. And then that became my first book, Cross-Examined. And that was 20 years ago because um, next year we're doing a a revised edition exactly 20 years after it first came out. So just being a reader there, had you had a foot in the door. It's so often with these things, it's it's about um, just contacts and conversations and it, it wasn't in any kind of scheme or plan in my mind it was it literally was just a conversation in passing um to which you know any editor worth their salt would say well give it a go see let's let's have a look and there's nothing to lose except maybe a little wounded pride um but thankfully uh, things went well and um i've done a number of books since i guess if there was a running theme I think it would be a theme similar to my ministry in speaking and teaching, 
Um, but it is the issue of trust that's cropped up in a number of places. Trust and and power, the two big ones, probably. Yeah. What what do you mean by that, Mark? Well, I've been involved in doing university missions um, over the years. Not many. I'm not as experienced as some, and I'm certainly not a full time um, outreach guy. But I've done a few, um, and certainly in the course of uh, ministry, both in this country and elsewhere. It's become apparent that, you know, we in the West live in a fairly suspicious, cynical uh, age. And that's been perplexing, although at the same time, it's been something I could relate to. And I just really wanted to grapple with that and get to the bottom of it. Why why is this? Why are we so sceptical about things? And that led to all kinds of different um, sort of researches and studies Um, I ended up writing a book called The Wilderness of Mirrors that came out five years ago. And that book actually ended up taking five years to write. But it was um, much more than just those five years. It was many years of just thinking about this stuff. And um, basically, I realized that the, the reason you don't trust or the reason you are guarded is because you've had your fingers burned. In the end, that boils down to abuses of power. And if you have suffered abuses of power, then you are much more reluctant to to let yourself be vulnerable again. And if you sort of multiply that to the nth degree across all kinds of different elements of society, then the consequences are going to be devastating, both for society and for individuals. And I think that's reflected in, in what we're seeing. Yeah. And so how does the the church take that on board? Because I can see the church being a place that has mishandled trust and it has burnt people's fingers. How can we be people that uh, can maybe not even try to earn back trust, but can be safe places for people? Right. I think that question um, hits the nail on the head because I think if one can sort of cycle back a little and just say, you know, for the last, I don't know, 300 plus years, our focus has been responsive to the enlightenment assaults on truth. And, you know, and they've been pretty relentless and and full on. um, And they tend to be philosophical, don't they? So, you know, um, the the enlightenment rationalists, um, the, the closed universe, empiricism, all these things where basically you only believe what is, say, testable in the laboratory or um, provable with an equation or that kind of thing. And so therefore, the metaphysical, the the, the God stuff, the transcendent stuff, that is just ruled out as inadmissible in court, if you like, Um, and is relegated to the kind of private sphere. Well, you can believe that if you like, but for heaven's sake, don't let it bother public life. And so we've been on the back foot for for, um, these three centuries or so, trying to get a case out there that says, no, that's not how it is. Um, And so I think this has led to all kinds of things where basically you're looking for historical evidences of the resurrection or, you know, how can you believe that the Bible is God's word? And, And you have your, I don't know, your Josh McDowell type books with lots of bullet points to, to, to memorize as, as, and, you know, they have their place, of course, um, and there's some very good stuff in it. But the idea that um, 
you can just accumulate a bunch of slam dunk arguments and that'll sort it. Well, there's certainly been proven mistaken. There's so many other uh, things going on. But, uh, and this is what has changed. And in the, in the so-called sort of postmodern era, say, I don't know, since the Second World War, to put it crudely, you've had people who had been extreme on the left, so Marxists, often, um, bizarrely enough, in France, and after totalitarianism of the middle of the 20th century, and um, particularly those on the left having seen um, evidence of what Stalin had really been up to, even though they'd been in the West, um, some of his main defenders, they reject the Marxism that, the Marxism that they had um, clung to, and they don't suddenly come running into the warm embrace of the church result, what they do is say, well, actually, you can't trust any of these big ideas, these ideologies that encompass everything. They say, in the end, um, these are actually dangerous. Look what they do. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the left or on the right, whether it's Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, or even the church. And, you know, they will always cite things like the Spanish Inquisition or um, burning of witches in New England or, or whatever it is and and basically no religion let alone ideology gets off scot-free and so suddenly in the last 50 years or so the church is not seen as um, a, a haven or a solution it's seen as actually right in the heart of the problem and um, and so the, 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 the drumbeat has been basically the church is no different from any other human institution. And so then the assault is not philosophical, but sociological. It's saying, how does power operate in society? And the church seems, well, frankly, no different. So I think I sometimes summarize it by thinking, well, if somebody say in um, Sydney or in New York or wherever, happened to walk into a church 50 years ago, it's likely that their questions primarily would focus around, is this true? How can I believe this? What, what's the evidence? Yeah. If somebody today wandered into a church, which unless they're tourists, frankly, is very unlikely, <laughs> but if they did, their question isn't gonna be, is this true, but am I safe? Yeah. Or are they going to take my money or change my personality or abuse my children? And so the Catholic child abuse scandals, um, and, and you know, this is by no means suggesting that Catholicism is the only denomination that has a problem with this. Actually, it's just because they're bigger and global and they can do things that most normal groups can't. In other words, they have things like diplomatic bags to smuggle documents in. Um, no other church can do that. Um, but it's, it's rampant in so many different churches. You know, that was, basically the epitome of the problem and you just think well you can't trust the church so we've got a major major problem we've got a huge hurdle to to, to jump as a church because people frankly do not feel safe with us yep i guess too that's an outside looking in perspective and then we've got an inside perspective too because right if our answers are just simple this 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 where is our room for our questions? Um, Absolutely right. And do we feel safe in asking our questions? I think it's twofold, actually. It's, it's safety to ask questions and safety to fail. 
Yeah. And uh, including fail morally, because yeah. the reality is that we are all yeah. sinners. And this is where I think um, I found Bonhoeffer particularly insightful and helpful. His little book, Live Together, was balm for my soul because he just reminds us of what we've actually preached about and always known if we've been Christians, that actually the church is full of sinners. And yet somehow, so often, the way we operate is that there's no room for failures. And so people then have to create this facade, this mask of being sorted and holy and convinced, um, while underneath there are sort of boiling mass of temptations and confusions and pains and hurts. And if the church is not a place where you can actually get help with those, not necessarily just sort of, you know, hang all your dirty washing out in public, but to be open with a few and certainly with the leadership, then heaven knows, where else can you go with them? Yeah. You mentioned the image of wearing a mask in one of your books, When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. Right. Can you go into how, again, you're using the mask there? Because I think they're related, actually. Um, you're, you're right. If there's no place in our fellowships for failure, Equally, there's no place for weakness or perceived weakness. And so you've got the situation where if someone is struggling emotionally or, or mentally or psychologically, they have to conceal that because it's too risky to, to, um, to open up in, in certain situations, either because people will sort of pile on platitudes and trite little sort of solutions as if they know what they're talking about as if that will really make a difference or you'll somehow be dismissed or marginalized as an unreliable or second-rate christian who's not really going for it or who really believes it um we, i think particularly when it comes to mental illness we are very nervous and and wary of it, partly because it is a scary thing, especially if it's alien to you. You, you, you can't quite comprehend it. And so what we fear, we tend to push away. And so this gets, um, this all piles on the, the motivation to mask it. Um, and of course, that particularly for mental illness can be a real disaster. It can actually compound the problem, certainly not help it. Yeah. Now, I've uh, been someone who's struggled with depression for over 10 years now. So for um, me, reading uh, your book and the way you speak about your struggles uh, is hugely encouraging because it's not something that people want to talk about. So first of all, thank you for for doing that. But how hard was it for kind of coming out and doing like the big reveal so to speak <laughs> yeah um well I, i'm i'm glad it was helpful and in a way what you said is precisely the the thing that convinced me that i should do it it really didn't start out as something i wanted to publish i, I you know i've had a string of different therapists and people i've talked to i mean 
I don't know about you, but I, I know automatically how to go into therapy mode. I know how to be a client in a therapy situation. And I, you know, I cut to the chase. Let's get, get, get to it. Let's not bush, beat around the bush. But I had a particularly um, helpful um, psychologist when we were living in London. And um, he was South African. And we had lived for a number of years in East Africa but actually one or two experiences that he'd had would be similar to mine. So that actually really, um, you know, created an extra sense of understanding. But he was the one who suggested that I start just trying to write things down because I think he knew that I was a writer of sorts. And he just said, well, it may be that what you're struggling to articulate um, orally might be something you can put on paper. And actually that began a process of sort of, which was really eye-opening because I suddenly found that he was absolutely right. And that actually I could, um, I could articulate things on paper better than I could do so in my head and with my speech. And so it was actually a clarifying process. And so it was entirely for myself and I guess partly for my family, because I think one of the things that was hardest was how, alienating it, it made me um, the situation with the family um, because it was pretty alien to, to both my wife and, and the kids. There had been some folks in my wider family who, who battled with mental illness and I guess there was perhaps a kind of inevitability, not, you know, not totally, but there were, there were one or two people around that maybe you think, okay, well, there were some factors in that. And so I wanted to be able to try and pass them something that could say okay this does a better job than I can actually speak but it certainly wasn't for public um, consumption at all and I found the process therefore of of writing it certainly the first draft was very very easy it was the easiest book to write it just I just sort of vomited out really it took only three months or so in between doing a, a fairly full-time job it was just sort of yeah. poured out and so in that sense was this a really helpful process and just in the course of ministry so um, you know both working in churches and doing pastor training so I'm primarily focused uh, in traveling to Eastern Europe um, and in the sort of former communist contexts and I would find without me saying a word and certainly not at that time being known at all for anything to do with um, depression or anything like that it was all quite private but almost without exception I would spot one or two people sidling up and trying to find their moment say at a meal at a conference or whatever saying can I just have a word people all over in all kinds of different situations and it would just somehow come up that they were battling with depression and particularly in some of these eastern European contexts where there, there seems very little understanding of these things. For a pastor to admit that is, is pretty much career suicide. And for whatever reason, they felt they could open up to me. And it was like, okay, there's something going on here. And I started sharing excerpts of the book to people. I think, you know, someone might relate something. I said, well, can I send you something? Because I think I've tried to describe something similar. You might find it helpful. And that's how it snowballed, really. Yeah, because that's it. It reads like a, a journey, uh, partly from Africa and back again. Not like The Hobbit, of course. But... No, not, not like The Hobbit. 
but also the toll that it, it ministry has taken on you and now as you've reflected kind of the stories from other people as well how has i guess that uh battles that ministry takes how often do we speak about those i think that's that's a good point i mean i think we don't tend to um present the full picture although having said that i think you know when i was considering ordination and ministry and going to seminary and stuff actually looking back i think people were saying hey look there's not a bed of roses and and you know um there are costs to this but i was naive and had rosy tinted specs on and i was thinking that there's a kind of unspoken prosperity gospel i think sometimes even amongst so-called conservative evangelical bible-believing christians you kind of half think even though if you put it into words you think no that's not true but you kind of half think well i'm going to be okay you know my ministry is going to it's it's you know people are encouraging me into this it seems like the right thing and i want to do this and you know everything all the the, the things are, are lined up you think yeah I, i'll be okay and it'll go well um and yet when you stop to, to to think about it there's absolutely no reason why there's any guarantee of that at all and in fact when you look at some of the most successful in quotes ministries in the new testament um, you have to see, say that the, they were some of the most traumatic and sacrificial and costly ministries you can imagine. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. Um, I sometimes sort of, and I, I use this in talks now, I sometimes wonder, you know, just imagine there had been an autopsy on Paul's body when he died. You know, what could you discover? You know, I, it's partly because watching too much CSI and all that rubbish. Um, but, you know, you think, well, what could you discover about his life from his body and it would just be incredible you know all the stonings the the shipwrecks and the the malnutrition and the scars i mean you know forget the psychology just look at his body what he's yeah. been through and yet he was a foundational major player in the history of the church so what makes me think who's a bit part you know tiny sort of little corner in a corner think that i'm going to have it easy so I think we just don't really believe that. Um, but I think that the other problem is that actually hardships and sacrifices and costs come in lots of different shapes and sizes. And I didn't anticipate that mental illness would be one of mine. So can you tell me, you've left All Souls. You're not a pastor. What are you doing now? That um, I've worked in a number of different churches and, and I taught in a seminary in Uganda in 2014 i came off the staff of all souls and it was interesting um i vividly remember one of the sort of senior members of the congregation um said to me just a few weeks before um i came off staff was oh i'm very sorry to hear you're leaving the ministry and um, what are you going to do next and in some ways i guess that was <laughs> you know the epitome of the situation in that people assumed that if you're not working as an ordained leader of a congregation, you're not in ministry or you're leaving the ministry, which of course, uh, when you put it like that, is, is slightly absurd. And I, and I had to say, no, I'm not leaving ministry. In fact, I'm carrying on in ministry and I hope so for the rest of my days. I'm just doing it slightly differently. And I think one of the helpful things I, I remembered was 
Um, when we finally, uh, so back in 2001, we left for Uganda. And I remember, and our children were small. And even though I'd been ordained and worked in a church in the north of England and so on, but I remember vividly having this sense as I walked on the gangway onto the, to, to the flight itself, flying down to Uganda, I vividly remember thinking, I'm coming off the conveyor belt. I'm doing ministry, but I'm, I'm coming off the conveyor belt that assumes you go to seminary, you become a curate in the Anglican setting or an assistant, then you become a vicar or an, a senior pastor, and then basically you do that ad infinitum. And, and of course, for many people, that's exactly right. That's exactly what they should do, what they're gifted to, to do. But yeah. I just had this sense that's not me anyway. Um, but I just hadn't really explored what that might look like. And so it felt like I was on a kind of inescapable loop, a conveyor belt, and walking onto the plane, suddenly doing something that was slightly off-piste and slightly unexpected, you know, certainly those who knew me at college, it was like, oh, well, okay, you can do this. And in fact, that's the great thing about ministry. You can do it in any shape or form, any walk of life. It just so happens that now, having left All Souls a few years ago, I work for the Langham Partnership, which, of course, grew out of All Souls and John Stott, although it's not sort of formally bound to the church anymore. Um, I'm training pastors. So in a way, I have a kind of unofficial role as pastor to pastors. And I couldn't do that without having been a pastor. Um, and I see that as one of the greatest privileges you can have. And, um, and I love doing that. And I think that actually all kinds of aspects of what I've been through, including the depression, I would say have fed into that ministry now, um, that it's actually an integral part. Um, and I would even say that it's about the only thing that helps me get my head around having been through some of those sort of dark nights, if you like. It's the only thing that, that is anything remotely like an explanation. What are some of the uh, positives and also the negatives that you can take out from depression and supply to uh, the ministry? I think the negatives are, are fairly tried and tested and known in, in terms of just how disorientating it is, how it is depleting. You just lose your sense of, well, certainly your energy, but your sense of who you are and what you're meant to be around about for. Yeah. Um, it, it isolates you. It, it, it alienates you from the people who are closest to you and that you should feel you can rely on but somehow the lies that go around your head at 100 miles an hour are telling you no um, you're better off alone and it just exacerbates everything so all of this you know whatever form of illness it takes it, it's it's so destructive there's very little positivity about it but in retrospect you can see positives and i think this is the thing in the in the midst of the storm you can't see them you can't see anything really but C.S. Lewis has that wonderful kind of articulation of true friendship. And I think he says it in two or three of his books, but he, he makes the point. He says, you know, um, friendship begins when somebody says, what, you two as well? I thought I was the only one. And to be able to say to somebody, look, my experience is not identical. We don't have identical experiences, but I think I know what you're talking about is one of the most affirming and generous things you can offer to somebody 
and I tell you, when you encounter it for yourself in somebody else, it is it is balm for the soul. It is an oasis in a desert. It's like, oh, I am not going completely mad. I yeah. thought this was just something only happened to me. Well, to be able to say you're not alone is 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 just one of the most extraordinary gifts. And of course, I think in the end, that is fundamental to the kingdom, because isn't that precisely what one of the names of God means? Emmanuel, God with us. You're not alone. Mm. Um, so it's all derived out of the gospel, actually, um, which is why I think it is such a blessing to receive. Yeah, isn't that the message, I think, that we can offer to people that are struggling with mental health yeah, issues? Absolutely, because you see, I think in the middle of it, and I say this in the book, I didn't want fixers, I wanted friends. Yeah. And if you can summarize the best thing a friend can do for a loved one's mental illness is um, not to avoid and uh, not to offer solutions, but to offer in one word, accompaniment. Yeah. Just to be alongside. Now that is costly by itself. It's a very loving, but nebulous thing to do and you have no idea what it's going to cost you yeah it's open-ended so it's scary but that is the greatest gift you can give to somebody i think yeah and so often that involves silence and we don't like silence do we too right and that's a challenge in uh, itself and and there are ways ways to make that easier i think you know it, it's something that needs to be cultivated but one of the things that actually is to, one of the things I actually love is to be in a room with a good friend and we're both reading our books or yeah. listening to some music, but we're together. But there's just no onus on either of us to have to do anything. There are no oughts. We're just being. Mm -hmm. And it may well be that a conversation grows organically out of that, but it, it might not. But that doesn't matter. We're just being together. And, and I think, it, you know, at its simplest, that's accompaniment. Yeah. Just being there, even if you're just pottering or getting on with your own admin or whatever it is, um, that's a very simple thing. And, um, you know, to allow somebody just to stare into space, I mean, it seems pathetic, really, but that can be such a thing, a generous thing to do. Yeah. And to be honest, it would be awkward if. I sat in a room with my wife and tried to have a conversation all the time. Mm. Yeah. There are moments when we just sit and be and do things. So you're right that just accompanying is such a beautiful thing. Mm. And, and it's not to preclude things that come out of it. Yeah. But it's just saying that's all it takes at, at base level. And, um, you were saying that When Darkness Seems, My Closest Friend was the easiest book that you've written in terms of the first draft, that it just flew out. Mm. After that is a different story. <laughs> yeah, I, I could imagine you having to sift through what should be kept and what should be cut would be quite a process. How do you keep up with everything? Ministry, full-time ministry and trying to write as well? I think... Um, I am a will-o'-the-wisp. I think I get bored very quickly and my brain and mind just flits around. And so 
one of the things I realized a few years ago is that I'm a, I'm a project guy. I'm a, definitely not a long-term maintenance guy. I, I'm not good with routine. <laughs> and I think that was one of the things that convinced me that actually just full-time local church ministry was not quite for me because that actually depends in large part on routine. And the kind of work I do now means that every day and every week are, are, are different and that's that suits me down to the ground um, so I like juggling and having different plates spinning but I, I do have to be careful and I have to you know not jump on the the newest excitement and bring things to, to fulfillment that seem like a good idea at the time having said you know I, I found the lockdown um, difficult because you know, I, we have been stuck at home. Um, yeah. I think we we didn't leave the house for more than just a walk with the dog just in the local park um, for 120 days. Um, and I, you know, we were all crawling up the walls a bit. Um, and I know that people have struggled with much worse. But what that did actually force me to do is to complete a couple of projects that I was, was doing. And in fact, one of them had a deadline for the end of August. And looking back, if I just had my normal commitments and routine, there's no way in a million years I would have completed it and yeah. got it in by the end of August. As it happened, I got it in by the end of June, which was just a miracle. But so without the lockdown, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, so that was a bit of a lesson learned. Um, but I, yeah. I, I just have to watch it, but it is just the nature of the way I am. I think that I can't focus on one thing for more than a short space of time. So the, the solution has been to have three or four things going that I rotate. <laughs> yeah. So what's on the, in the pipeline for you? So um, I'm doing a DMIN, a doctoral ministry through a seminary in the States. It's a non-residential thing, so we have six modules that are residential for a week at a time. And obviously the lockdown has meant that the last one and the next one was due to be in September have had to be, um, well, it's all changed and things are fluctuating all the time. Quite how we can do that. But next year is the thesis writing, so that's, that's a focus. Um, I'm trying to write a novel. I'm trying to provide some resources for Langham as well in, in terms of writing things um, and I write articles and short pieces for various um, online things and reviews and whatnot so having those little things actually keeps me going just in terms of having variety with with two or three longer term projects that, that um, are more substantial yeah I can't quite see the light at the end of the tunnel for those big things now um, I just got to keep my head down mostly I think yeah fair enough Fair enough. Well, it's been a pleasure to sit and talk with you today, Mark. It's been well, an absolute honour for me. No, thank you. Well, it's and been fun. It was such a joy to have Mark on the podcast. All of Mark Mendel's books can be found wherever you get Christian books from. And I know he has some great resources out there on iTunes as well. Mark writes online at markmendel.net. As always, I'm so grateful you found this little corner of cyberspace and would love it if you subscribed or left a review. I look forward to seeing you next time.